here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about this. When was the last time you took a three to four hour walk? Not mile, three to four hour walk. That's, that's going to be a long walk. That might be seven, eight miles when you tally it up. But just, just imagine if you're walking with a close friend, maybe a spouse, what would you talk about for that long of a time period? Three or four hours just walking, right? Imagine the same walk a few days after you've experienced something horrific. You're full of disappointment. You're full of sorrow. Your walking pace is most likely a little slower than normal. Turn in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 24. Because in Luke chapter 24, we sort of have this situation going on. Here we have the account of two of Jesus' disciples as they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It was most likely the day that Jesus resurrected from the grave. They were disciples of Jesus. And despite the rumor that there's a missing body and a possible resurrection, they didn't accept the comfort or the hope of the others. They decided we're just going to leave town. So they're traveling to Emmaus, slow pace, a sad discussion, and they're suddenly joined by a stranger who seems to be clueless as to why they're moving at such a slow pace and why are their hearts so saddened. And the stranger says, what's going on here? So look at verse 17. It says, they stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. They're like, where have you been, right? They once had hope. These disciples once had hope. Jesus to them was a prophet, a miracle worker, a powerful teacher. In Jesus, they had placed all their hope for a new kingdom. They had to hope for a Messiah. They had the hope of a redeemer of their sins. They had to hope for a leader who would liberate them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. A rescuer of Israel. But, but now that hope is all gone. They shared with this stranger as they were walking how the women had gone to the tomb and they found it empty. And then those same women came back and told the disciples that, hey, the tomb is empty. And those men left to go verify this claim. Continue on reading there, verse 24. It says, some of our men ran out to sea. And sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. But these two disciples still didn't believe. Instead of going to Galilee as Jesus commanded, instead the disciples headed to Emmaus without hope, without comfort. But in their defense, why have hope? I mean, no one comes back to life. No one, right? Oh, okay, wait a minute. What about, except Lazarus and John 11. But nobody, oh wait, there is um, Jairus' daughter. But nope, okay. And there is the widow's son. Okay, but besides those three, Nobody comes back to life, right? Hmm. Come on. Is it really possible? I mean, logic, logic says the Messiah 
shouldn't go through beatings. The Messiah shouldn't go through pain. The Messiah shouldn't suffer a cruel death. I mean, how could God's Redeemer suffer so much? That just doesn't make sense, right? After all, God doesn't suffer, right? So the Messiah shouldn't suffer, right? Well, those are sometimes arguments people may use, but they're not very good arguments. So Jesus takes them on a journey as they are walking through Scripture. Look at verse 26. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah, look at this, would have to suffer? You might want to underline that. All these things before entering his glory. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, suffer? Why would he suffer? Jesus like, let me explain to you how I'm going to have to suffer. Of course, they didn't know it was Jesus yet at that moment. What scriptures did he take them to? Could he have possibly taken them to Isaiah 53? If you want, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. I'll give you the scripture here. Isaiah 53. I'm going to start in verse 2. It says this. There is nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Verse 4 says, Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was cr crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Verse 6 goes on to say, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. When you read those scriptures, and, and, and Jesus took these two disciples through the Old Testament, to what the prophets had to say, revealing that the Messiah would suffer. He would suffer before entering his glory. And, and here's what we know to be true. Suffering almost always precedes glory. Well, again, look through Scripture. Consider Abraham, who was childless and homeless before landing in the promised land. Joseph was a prisoner and a slave before rising to power. Moses, he had a 40-year rough start in the wilderness before liberating the slaves from Egypt, as well as the process of freeing them. What about David? He was tormented and hounded by Saul before becoming a king himself. Hosea had an unfaithful wife. Jonah, he had an issue of obedience and a whale, right? Suffering before glory. So we have to ask these questions. Is God only faithful when we are shielded from difficulty and suffering? Or is God always faithful? 
That's something to consider, something to think about. Because in Scripture, we, all, we see the suffering and then the glory. So why not it be the same way for the Messiah? Jesus, God in the flesh, was despised. He was rejected by his own people. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. But it's by his wounds we are healed. He did this for us. Is this something, I mean, you think about this, is this why we miss seeing God at work today? Because we are always expecting victory and joy 100% of the time. So we, we miss the suffering and we don't see that that's what must proceed before the glory. Do we think that there should be no suffering for Christians? No poverty for the believer? No sorrow for those who have placed their faith in Christ? Do we fall to that lie that, well, if I'm not living a great life, God must not be real. If you're having a rough time, God is still real. Suffering precedes glory. Could it be that just as suffering was preceding the glory of Jesus, we too must share in suffering? Now again, some of your sinners are saying, yeah, we get this, Rex. We, we, are, we, we all face suffering of one sort or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But suffering reminds us that we have a dependence on God. That's not bad. Some people say like, was God your crutch? No, he's not my crutch. He's my God. But in our selfishness, we we begin to think, well, maybe I don't need God. I got this. And when we suffer, we may even blame God. But suffering is part of a sinful world. And it should actually draw us closer to God, making us realize that we depend on him in the midst of our suffering. So what I love about this particular story is like, why are we going here to this story today? Well, last week was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It was incredible. But yet today we're still tasting a little bit of suffering, right? And we're sort of lingering, maybe a little bit in doubt, like, well, if God is so good. And we have this resurrection power and this resurrecting God. Why do I still have some suffering going on? Why am I still having some doubt or disbelief? So what I love about this story is that Jesus met these disciples right in the midst of their, their suffering and in grief. And he walks with them. Picture that. They're walking away from truth, questioning, and Jesus meets them right where they're at. He doesn't say, hey, you need to turn around. Hey, you need to stop. He says, what's going on? What's happening with you right now? And he walks with them. That's what God does. He meets us right in our confusion. He meets us right in our sorrow. And he walks with us. He listens to us. And then he says, now listen to me. And he shares truth. In your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. So you're in Luke right now. Just continue towards the back of the Bible. Get to Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In 2nd Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. I want to spend some time on this passage. This is an incredible passage. Paul says this, starting in verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. 
when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God's given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Verse 6, even when we're weighed down with troubles, it's for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. Verse 7, we are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort that God gives. Verse 8, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In, in fact, it says, verse 9, in fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves. And we learned to rely on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he'll rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him. And we will continue, that he will continue to rescue us. Verse 11. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Go back and, do me a favor, go back and read verse 3 again. I'm just going to pause. I want you to read it. Reread it. Dwell on it. Now make a proclamation. Heavenly Father, all praise and glory to you. You are God. You are just. You are holy. You are true. You are full of love. You are full of mercy. You are full of grace. All powerful. All knowing. Eternal. All present King. Father of Jesus Christ, source of life, source of all comfort. I need you. God of all comfort in my sorrow, in my anger, in my weakness, in my pain. I need you. The source of all comfort. Make that proclamation now. Go back, read verse 3. Make it your prayer. Make it your claim today. Because in verse 3, Paul calls God our merciful Father. That Greek word describes compassion, lament, and sorrow. It tells us that God completely understands the, and he identifies with the suffering soul. See, the word here that he uses for comfort is paraklesis. Paraklesis, which describes encouragement and consolation and comfort that is provided to another who is undergoing some kind of hardship or suffering. See, God himself comes to the assistance of those who are suffering difficulty, whether it's physical or emotional. God comes right there and says, I'm right next to you to provide comfort. You're saying, wait, this word sounds familiar. Haven't we talked about this before? Absolutely. In John 14, 16, 14, 26, 15, 26, and 16, 7, Jesus says, I'm going to send you, that's us he's talking to, my comforter. He said an advocate. He said his Holy Spirit. And the word he uses here is parakletas. Yes, very similar to what we just talked about in verse 3. Jesus says that his spirit will never leave us. He is the comforter. 
He is comfort. Uh, let's, let's sort of help you understand this. I, I read this story from uh, Pastor Rick Renner. He shares a story that one day when he was younger, he was coming home on holiday break, and his father had called him and said, Hey, Grandpa is not answering the phone, and he hasn't been to the hospital to see Grandma today. And she's worried about him, and it's not normal that nobody's heard from him. Rick's dad went on to say, would you please meet me at our grandparents' house so we can make sure that he's okay? So Rick headed over to the grandparents' house. His dad headed over there. The house was locked. Since Grandpa was nowhere to see him, they went back to the garage. They went in the garage where he liked to work, and it was there that they discovered his grandpa's body. His grandpa had taken his life. This is what Rick said. He said, I'll never forget that moment and the great grief that overwhelmed my father. Dad stayed with grandpa's body and he told Rick to go call the pastor, go call the ambulance. Both arrived. The ambulance transported his body to the to the morgue. And as if that day wasn't filled with enough difficulty he and his dad then went to the hospital to share with his grandmother the sorrowful news. And when his dad told his grandmother the sad and dreaded news, they cried and they cried hard. And he said it was a sight he will never forget. That next year, Rick went on to say he was dreading Christmas because he knew it would remind them of the previous year's tragedy. He knew that they would feel the absence of his grandpa and potentially live through the pain of all those emotions over again. But this is what Rick said. Let me read this to you. However, God was with us in a mighty and faithful way that Christmas season. His grace was simply upon us, comforting us and helping us move forward with no great crushing grief. It was truly miraculous to see how God worked to help us through what could have been a very difficult time. God is our merciful Father, the source of all comfort. That's what I'm talking about. That in the midst of our suffering, and He says, you know what, I'm going to come to you in a supernatural way and provide you comfort. Because I'm the God of all comfort. That's verse 3. Verse 4. Let's go back to verse 4. It says, He comforts us in our troubles so that we can, what? Comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God's given us. See, that word trouble there is a word that depicts a, a crushing pressure. It's beyond what any human should naturally have to go through or it tells that when Paul was writing these words, he was suffering immensely. But God comforted Paul. And, and God stood by Paul and gave him enough strength to get through this trial successfully. As a result, Paul says, I'm able to comfort others now. God comforted me. Now I can comfort others. And then I was thinking, does, does God comfort me? So that I can go out and feel better and brag and say, hey, I'm, I'm feeling better now. Look, look, at, look at me. Or I'm feeling better now, so I'm going to go avoid more pain. Not necessarily. God comforts me and God comforts you so that you and I can now what? Go comfort others. That's what this verse says. Think about that. 
The same comfort that God gives us, we can now take that same comfort and give to others. According to Paul, God steps forward to personally strengthen us through a crushing ordeal. And as a result, we are able to go tell others, regardless of what they're facing or what they may face in life, God will be with them to endure to the end. When we are comforted, think about this, verse 6, when we are comforted by the God of all comfort, verse 3, we are able to comfort others. How does this happen? (laughs) Well, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what happened to him and, and when they were in Asia, but whatever it was, it sounds like it was pretty bad. It sounds like a grueling experience. Paul tells us in verses 6 to 9 that he expected to die. In, in the book of Acts, there's, there's more to this story, but he, sh- he doesn't share all that story here. You know why? He's not looking for pity. He, he's, he's giving the crushing truth of despair and pain. And he says, I'm basically done enduring and I am ready to die. And that's when he realized, you know what? I need to put my trust in God. Not in myself, but in God. Read with me. Let's go to verse 8. Paul said this. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble that we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. Paul says we went through some trouble. And again, here's that word trouble. Again, used to convey the idea of this, this heavy pressure situation. In, in fact, at one point, this word, think about this. It used to depict a victim who was first tied up with a rope. And then he was laid on his back. And then a huge, heavy boulder was slowly lowered on him. Until he was crushed. Now I couldn't find a picture of that. Imagine that, right? But I did see this picture and I saw, check this picture out. Can you imagine, you know, obviously this is a stage picture, but can you imagine a huge boulder rolling on top of you? Slowly rolling on you. Not like a, not like a squat like the coyote and, and the roadrunner and Bugs Bunny, okay? But we're talking about like a slow deliverance here, okay? Now, that heavy situation. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I feel like something's coming down on me. It's just like crushing me. And it wasn't just physical, as most people think. A greater suffering that Paul and other Christians suffered was also a mental suffering. Paul says we were crushed. We were overwhelmed in our ability to endure. That Greek phrase that is used here means to to throw beyond, to excel, to exceed, to go beyond anything normal or expected. So it's like Paul is saying here, he's going, we were under an amount of pressure that is not normal. It's, it's far beyond anything that we've ever previously experienced. Then Paul says this, we thought we would never live through it. And again, studying the Greek words and phrase, the the technical use here is basically him saying, there's no way out. It's where we get our word exasperated. It's when people feel trapped or caught up. uh, They're against the wall. They're pinned down. They're utterly hopeless. Matter of fact, today we might say, hey, sorry, but this looks like it's the end of the line for you. Again, this is what Paul's feeling physically and mentally. 
Paul continues in verse 9. It says, in fact, we expected to die. Now, there's an interesting translation uh, in the ESV. If you've got ESV or a different translation, it would say this. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. Oh, now the word sentence here, think about that. What are you thinking right now when I say, here's the sentence? You're thinking the courtroom, right? It's like the word sentence speaks of a final verdict. Paul is saying, yeah, looks like the verdict's in. We're not going to survive. Again, all these different phrases and words used in verses 8 and 9, when you pull these all together, it is describing a mental agony that Paul's going through. Anybody there right now? Anybody can relate to what's going on here with Paul? Anybody listening this morning that's like, I have gone through a lot of mental agony lately. Uh, yeah, physical the emotional agony, job loss, the pressure, doing things differently. You've been isolated for four weeks now, five weeks now, and you're to the point now where I'm tired of isolation and it's starting to play a mental game on you. Now, maybe we're not to that point where Paul is, but Paul's saying, I'm there. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 continues. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and we learned to rely on God who raises the dead. Amen. And he did rescue us from mortal danger and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. Ah, I love it. Paul turns the corner here, right? He's been under such intense pressure that he felt death was unavoidable. And then right from the midst of this horrible situation, it's like God's power releases this, this resurrection, this rescue into Paul. And Paul says it's like as if he and his own companions had been raised from the dead. I'm telling you, when you don't know what else to do, and you don't have anywhere else to turn, that's usually when God's resurrection power starts operating in us as Christians. Think about this. For a Christian, there's no such thing as no hope. If you ever have, you ever hear a Christian say, there's no hope, my permission to grab them by the collar, look them in the eyes and say, you're wrong. For the Christian, there's always hope. As long as there is a loving heavenly father that you can call on, there's always hope for you. Always. Now, although we may not always admit it, we occasionally have those times and we hit a brick wall, don't we? We don't know what to say. We don't know where to turn to. We don't even know how to pray. You ever been there? You're sitting there thinking, I don't even know how to pray about this, God. Sometimes it seems like maybe we've hit a, a dead end and it seems like it's over, it's done. I, I'm done with. You ever been in a place like that? Again, like under that big boulder, feeling a little crushed. Maybe you failed. Maybe you've been misunderstood. Maybe you've been unfairly judged. Maybe you've made some serious mistakes yourself. It's at this point in time we must simply surrender. Raise the white flag and say, the power of the resurrection of God I need right now. That's what the apostle Paul did when he found himself face to face with life-threatening situations. He said, I am just going to fully rely on God. Now, if the kids are watching right now, draw a picture of a frog, okay? Do me a favor. Draw your best picture of a frog. And right underneath that frog, put the word frog, F-R-O-G. 
Why? Because that's fully rely on God. Every time you see a frog jumping around, you can think about, I got to fully rely on God. I know that's corny, right? But just giving our kids something to do right now. Think of that frog. Fully rely on God. Now look at verse 9. Who am we supposed to rely on? I think the verse is still there for you to see. We're supposed to fully rely on who? You? Nope. On God. Fully rely on God. Who has the power to raise the dead? You? Wrong again. God. When you look at verse 10, it says, It is God who rescued us from mortal danger. He rescued. I love that word. Because basically, I I picture this. I picture God choosing to enter into our danger zone. That's what a rescue is. A rescuer sees the dangerous situation. And they jump into the dangerous situation to save the one who is in peril. That's us. We're in a world in which we need to be rescued from. And God steps in and rescues us. He puts himself in the middle of that dire situation. He can do this. You know why? Because he's God. Plain and simple, right? He chooses to rescue us. He was not forced to rescue us. We don't deserve it. We just don't deserve it. I don't know about you, but there are times when I've seen people, uh, news stories where people were rescued from certain situations. And I'm sitting there going, they made a stupid choice. And now they're in trouble. And now somebody has to go rescue them. If they would have just listened to uh, the authorities and not gone out there, they would have never put themselves in that kind of situation. If they would have just listened, right? But now somebody's got to go and rescue them. Then I realize I'm the same way. There's times I make choices that are just dumb. And God rescues me. He rescues me. He's so good at that, isn't he? He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to save. He's so good at this. And I love this. Verse 10 says that he's done it once. He's done it twice. He's done it many times before. He will do it again. I love that phrase. Do it again. God is a good God of doing it again, of rescuing us. Remember, and it's not about my rescue story. Okay. A lot of us have these big testimonies and they're awesome. They're great. How God's rescued us. And we make it to be all about the story and not about the rescuer. It's about the rescuer. It's about the one who saves us. He, God, the source of all comfort, will do it again. So we place our confidence in him. He will continue to rescue us. I believe it. Do you? Let's just, let's pause. Do you really believe that? Or am I just spouting words here, wasting my time? I believe not. I believe the time that I've spent this morning sharing with you matters. I believe you need to hear this and you need to proclaim it. Verse 11, the last verse in this section says, and you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. And you are helping us by praying for us. Did you know that when you ask for prayer, are you seeking to be rescued or are you looking for a pity party? Think about that. When you ask people to pray for you, do you really want to be rescued or are you just looking for some pity? A lot of us want to be rescued, right? Pray to God. And then pray for others. There's others out there that want to be rescued right now. They really do. Maybe they just don't know how to ask. Pray for them. 
Who are you seeking comfort from? Others or God? Go to God for comfort. Pray to him. Pray for one another. Pray for one another. What's the result? Many people are going to give thanks. Why are they going to give thanks? Because God graciously answers prayer. Once you proclaim your allegiance to God, listen, expect opposition to smack you constantly. Stand firm. Stand firm, church. Right now, you may feel these waves of discomfort coming over you, these waves of grief, this this pressure, these troubles. Stand firm in the God of comfort. How can I say this? Why do I believe this? Because our entire faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Resurrection. No longer dead. Alive. Up. Walking. Running. Why are we still sitting around? Why are we stuck? God's not a God of hopelessness. God is alive. He's full of hope. And he is full of comfort. He's full of comfort. Now, I love this story again, the road to Emmaus. Why? Because the disciples were walking away. They were in need of comfort. And what did they do? They walked in the wrong direction. Some of us this morning might be walking in the wrong direction. It's time to realize who walks with you. The God of comfort walks with you today. Turn around. Go where Jesus told you to go originally. Go be with the other disciples. Go. Let the God of comfort walk with you as he comforts you and as you then are able to comfort others. Robert Allen once shared a story about a little boy growing up in a community where the father served as a Methodist minister. He shares a story that about, he said he was outside playing, his boy was, and the boy's outside doing all the little things that a little boy does, right? He's climbing trees, swinging on the swing set, jumping out of the tree, rolling and playing with his dog in the, in the dirt. His mother calls him in for dinner. And all the family gathered at the table, and his mother looked at him and said, Young man, did you wash your hands? Let me see your hands. The little boy is sitting at the table. He's like, starts rubbing his hands on his pants and slowly lifts them up and shows them to his mother. And she says, how many times have I told you, you must wash your hands before you eat? When your hands are dirty, they have germs all over them and you could get sick. After we say the blessings, I want you to march yourself into the bathroom and wash your hands. Well, everybody at the table bowed their heads. Father gave the blessing, and the little boy got up, headed out of the kitchen, started marching towards the bathroom. Not before he stopped, he turned around, looked at his mother, and said, Jesus and germs, Jesus and germs. That's all I ever hear about, but I've never seen either of them. (laughs) You know, I feel like we're living in a time when there's a lot of talk about Jesus and germs, about Christ and Corona, uh, salvation and sickness. Either somebody's posting a message of hope or conspiracy, right? And you may wonder why I'm not daily posting messages of salvation and hope besides a Sunday morning message. Well, we're still doing ministry here at the church. We're still sending out weekly devotional challenges and doing the food pantry feeding the hungry. We're here if you need to talk. You can call us, you can text us, you can email us your questions, your prayer requests. But listen carefully. It seems that every 
about every month there's a new tragedy, a new challenge to face, a school shooting, a church shooting, a natural disaster, flooded spring fields and crops that can't be planted, economic challenges, and as of lately, a pandemic that brings us to our knees. And so I stand before you again as we face another wave of bad news. And I don't have anything new to say to you. And I'll tell you why. Because although the type of trouble changes, God's word never changes. He's still in charge. He is still faithful. He is still worthy of our trust. He's the God of all comfort. I will preach that till I'm blue in the face. It's like this. I feel like I'm at an ocean and a, and a wave hits me. You ever been there? Been in the ocean and a wave hits you? And it takes me by surprise at first. Then I realize I'm standing in the ocean. Duh, right? I saw the waves from the shore when I was on the shore. I knew they were there, but I still ventured into the ocean. And so I regained my balance. I stand firm because I know another wave eventually is going to hit me again. That's the rhythm of the ocean. That's the rhythm of life. Waves of tragedy, suffering, opposition are part of what I may face when I step into the waters of this world. And you too. But I have hope. Because you see, my God is a wave walker. Oh yeah. With one word, he can calm the storm. He's not abandoned me. I can turn around and I can look over to the shore. And there he is, my Lord, standing on that lifeguard post, right? Watching me in my every move. I'm not out of his sight. I'm not out of the range of his mighty saving hand. So here we are standing in the waves of life, getting smacked around again, right? What appears to be another wave. This wave seems a lot bigger than the last couple waves, doesn't it? But do not fear. God sees you. Stand firm. Knowing that the God of all comfort stands with you to comfort you so that you can comfort others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that you are a God of comfort. I thank you that you walk with us just like you walked with those disciples as they're on their way to Emmaus. And you reminded them that suffering precedes glory. And you took them through scripture. God, I thank you for Paul, who took us through his own personal life and said, I went through it too. And then he said, I fully rely on you. God, there may be somebody this morning that's listening. This whole coronavirus, job loss challenge at home an emotional time of some sort has been like a heavy boulder just just crushing somebody right now that's listening god i pray right now that they can just surrender to you and ask for help god you are god of all comfort you have the power to resurrect the dead you have the power to save us from what we're going through now save us lord resurrect in us what we need in order to be able to stand today by your spirit lord 
comfort us so that we can comfort others. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for truth. And God, as this wave hits us, help us stand firm. Help us to stand firm. We love you, Lord. We want to sing this song to you now because we believe you're a God of glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.